Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. And if you still have eardrums after that, you're the lucky few. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen back inside the longest contiguous brick building in North America. I think that the was BNO your warehouse. longest intro. It was certain, Maybe certainly my loudest. I, I yeah. really worry about uh, Bobby Blanco, who's our great producer behind the, the ones and twos today, because I probably blew out his eardrums. I'm sure I blew out yours. Almost definitely, but yeah. But that is the excitement level that we feel about being outside of our apartment doing a sure podcast. Are you sure that people won't miss the ambiance of the fridge in the background? I'm worried about more about the fridge. Yeah. That fridge gained some notoriety. Is, is it was he a star. Be, is he going to be able to recover? Our apartment is like a, a you know, a, a Blue's Clues-esque apartment where everything has eyeballs and comes to life. Sure. When we get the mail and we do the, we just got the letter. They well, this certainly took a turn. Um, so I worry about them. I worry about the small assistant that we had running everything. Yeah. Probably some intern. You know, he was just living in our apartment. He would just make us, you know, lunch as well in addition to yep. running our podcast. He on- just stayed in the living room. And yeah. just produced everything behind the scenes. That was his only job related to Masson. And yeah. then he would just do, you know, other sundry tasks around our apartment, which was right. nice. Um, he was a good setup. I'm a little sad to leave it. Yeah. I mean, he'll Not just, he'll still stay in our apartment. You know, we just won't have anything for him, unfortunately. <laughs> and for that, he will be sad. But wow. just kidding. We produced all the podcasts ourselves from the apartment. <laughs> so we're glad to have... Uh, Bobby back in, uh, in the warehouse helping us out as well. And we are excited to be back here looking over the field. Feels yeah, good, Brendan. It does. Fully vaxxed. It's nice to be back in the place where the team that we're talking about actually plays baseball. This is true. Yeah. Uh, they're not home. They're not playing baseball here right now. Uh, right. They are on the road, of course. Uh, but thank you so much for tuning in. If you're not watching, you should be watching. We go live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you're not watching, then you you are not getting a glimpse of this beautiful, lovely gas can. You yeah. can hear it. Uh, but the gas can that was brought to uh, down to Bowie yesterday for the Bowie Bay Sox, if you were there, let us know for Grayson Rodriguez's home debut as a member of the Bowie Bay Sox. Brendan, that was probably the largest crowd I've seen at a minor league game and probably the most raucous crowd and excited crowd that I have seen at a minor league game, at least in several years. It was impressive. I mean, the hype was on Twitter, and I was a little skeptical over whether that hype would really translate into fans once we were there. But people showed out. I mean, that was awesome to see. Grayson Rodriguez was fantastic in his start last night, but what else is new? He goes four and two-thirds, four hits, two earned runs, six strikeouts. And it almost seemed like he didn't really have his A stuff, yeah. which makes it all the more impressive that his maybe not best outing of the season is still four and two thirds, six Ks for a 21-year-old in double A. Yeah, he was, uh, he, I mean, the two earned runs, obviously, over four and two thirds. 
don't tell the full story. And his ERA just went up to what? A 182 in the AA level? Yes. Because he had 10 innings Balloons of one run to ball. to a 182. Yeah. Uh, he was lighting up the radar gun. Obviously, it's a minor league park, so I don't know how much you trust the, the radar gun in a minor league park. Sometimes it can be a little inaccurate. But he was routinely hitting 99 and 100, Whew. according to the in-stadium radar gun. So... He, he passed the eye test. He gave up some hard contact. You commented on it at the game yesterday, but just seeing after every single half inning, Adley Rutschman, the last out is recorded. He immediately runs up to, like literally jogs up to Grayson Rodriguez to start yeah. talking about how that inning went. It's just the, the kind of leadership that you see. And we, we heard before the game from Buck Britton about um, just how good this kid is as a human being. Too. The fact that you wouldn't know that he's a first-round pick, that he's one of the top prospects in all of baseball. He's very down-to-earth. That's what the sense that we've gotten from afar in the couple times that we've met him when he's come up to Camden Yards. But it's great to hear that reinforced. Yeah, and it's not like it's just a Grayson Rodriguez thing either. I mean, he does it with the entire pitching staff after Sadly, every single yeah. half inning. Goes up and has a conversation with the pitchers, talks with them about what worked, what didn't work, where they want to go for the next half inning. It's really impressive to have a catcher with that much leadership and with all of these Orioles pitchers that are developing in the minor league system, having somebody as their battery mate that is as good as Adley Rutschman is going to help their development tenfold. Yeah, and this is these are the fun moments of the rebuild. I know that there's obviously some moments at the big league level that are less than fun. The losing yeah. is, is not quite as fun, but you get to see, it was great to see a lot of faces that some people I had only met on Twitter or had seen yeah. tweet yeah. Um, to see them there and to see people get so excited about a double A start. I mean that it was a packed house. It was raucous. People were banging on the, the gas cans. People were getting creative with the, the way that they were decorating it. It was exciting to see. And that's what we a reminder of what we all missed from yeah. base minor league baseball, not being around in the 2020 season um, and just great to see that people are willing and eager to show back up to these games and get excited and, and pumped about minor league baseball. It shows, shows the power of minor league baseball to local sense, I think. Yeah, shows the power of minor league baseball, and it also shows the faith that people have in the rebuild Yeah, how the true. rebuild is going up to this point because you're going to buoy to see, according to Baseball America, the best pitching prospect in all of baseball yeah. throw to the best catching prospect in all of baseball. With a couple other top 10 prospects. Exactly. On the diamond with Terran Vavra and, uh, and the like. And saw D.L. Hall yeah. as well, taking pictures with some fans before the game. And Rodriguez wasn't perfect. I mean, three of the no. four hits that he allowed were extra base hits. He made a few mistakes. But obviously, those are things that he is going to grow out of as yeah. he is still 21 years old pitching at the double-A level at this point. He didn't get away with some of the mistakes that he probably got away with at the single-A level, but some of his strikeouts were so impressive. Yeah. I mean, he is just painting the corners with 99 and 100 where I don't, I don't think major league hitters would have touched what he was throwing last night on some of his strikeouts. Yeah, so 21 years old. I mean, that's yeah. the other exciting thing about, obviously, D.L. Hall was drafted a year before Grayson Rodriguez, but they were they both came out of high school. Right. So they were both on the still the younger side. Yeah. And Adley obviously is a, a college uh, player, and you have Heston Kerstad, who is their next first-round pick, who's a right. college player. But you still have some guys, holdovers from the Dan Duquette era, who are still on the younger side um, that still have a very, very high ceiling. So yes. excited to see. Very good stuff. Yeah. All right. Shall we get into uh, the title of this podcast? Let's do it. And let's talk about the rebuild. Mercury is in retrograde, Brendan. 
can't even say that <laughs> accurately because it shows I, I don't know anything about astrology, but that's yeah. what I hear. Okay. And what I've heard about this is that this is a time for you to step back and evaluate things. Okay. Not make any harsh, rash decisions, but just evaluate where things are. And I think that fits with where we are in the season currently. We're in the second week, third week now, I guess, of June. Yep. We're still, uh, what, a, a month and a half away from the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. We're still a month, less than a month away from the MLB draft. So let's let's take a look back and let's evaluate what the Orioles have done so far and also where Michael Elias has taken this team in the two and a half years that he has been at the helm. He was hired in November of 2018. And as the major league team struggles, the minor leagues have been excellent. You have this stark contrast between the minor league teams and the major league teams win-loss record. So I think it's it's fair to wonder just where they are in the process and the kind of job that Michael Elias has done so far. Yeah, it's a... A little bit of an awkward point in the season. Like you said, we're pretty far away from the All-Star game. We're far away from the MLB draft. So it's a nice time to look back at the last two and a half years, figure out where we are up to this point, look at some of the strengths of the Elias rebuild, some of the weaknesses, and room for improvement going forward. Yeah. Um, We're going to do a SWOT analysis. Do you remember that from college, Brendan? Vaguely. Yeah. It was buried deep in my brain. Now that you say it out loud, I feel like it rings a bell, but... I don't know. I don't know exactly, but yeah. I, I remember that it is SWOT, strength, weakness, opportunity, threats. It's time to evaluate the Orioles All and right. their SWATs. All right, let's start with the strengths, shall yeah. we? Let's talk about in the two and a half years since Michael Elias took over, the areas of strength, and I think you can break this down into three categories. The draft, international free agency, and the and trades. And I think if you look at all three of those phases – there is enough there. He hasn't been 100%, you know, in terms of success rate with all three of those areas. But I think Michael Elias in this front office, I think honestly, truly, if you look at this from an objective standpoint, has hit on all three. Yeah. I'm going to start with the trades. Yeah. Start with the Dylan Bundy trade. I know Dylan Bundy was good last year. Dylan Bundy has really fallen off this season. He has not pitched well for the Angels. That trade, I think, looks great so far. You've got guys like Kyle Bradish that are really succeeding at the minor league level. He looks like he could be a really good starting pitcher and maybe someone that the Orioles weren't anticipating being a part of that rotation conversation, but he has certainly worked his way into that conversation, I think. Uh, The Tommy Malone trade, that trade looks great considering he was with the Braves organization for, what, 30 days? Yeah, I think that's... Before he was waived? That is definitely the, um, the the you know, headliner for Michael Elias's trades over yes. the past couple of years. That is the, yeah. the gem. Yeah, the Jose Iglesias trade, I think, looks great. Jose Iglesias has not been good for the Angels this year. How's he doing? Uh, he is not hitting well. I'm not okay. sure what his exact average is, but Freddie Galvis has far exceeded what Jose Iglesias is doing for the Angels right now. And of course, the Orioles get good prospects in return there with Jemai Jones. Galvis or uh, Iglesias rather is hitting 275 with five homers, so he's been okay. He's been okay, but considering you were able to deal him and sign a replacement in Freddie Galvis, who has been just as good, right. if not a tick better, I think that that's a win. Yes, yeah. uh, the Michael Givens trade looks good. You've got Taron Vavra, and you've already seen Tyler Nevin at the major league level, mm-hmm. who had an extra base hit in his first at bat. And from all indications, Taron Vavra looks like he's going to be a really good major league player. Uh, Miguel Castro trade, that looks great. Kevin Smith has been fantastic at the minor league level. I think most of the trades have really been a hit so far. Yeah, I think you can legitimately point to 
a couple that have not. Yeah. Um, I think the the biggest one so far, actually maybe the only one that has come back to bite them would be the Mike Yastrzemski trade, which was uh, executed very early in Michael Elias's tenure. Um, and of course, at that point, you know, that hindsight is 2020 and you look back right. and you say that's, you know, it happened in March 2019. Michael Elias had not had great eyes on Mikey Stremski. He was a career minor leaguer, turns into a pretty good player for the San Francisco Giants. But how how many teams were predicting him to be that good? And all they got in return was Tyler Herb, who is now no longer with the in the organization. So that was a miss, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, in retrospect, that trade obviously doesn't look good, but he was hitting 265 in AAA at age 27. Right. So was that dude really going to project to be a starting Major League outfielder like he is right now for the San Francisco Giants? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a miss with scouting and stuff like that, but he didn't look like he was really going to no. be anything special. The pri- it's, it is part of the job, however, to evaluate talent. Right. And, and you know, I, I think if we give... Michael Elias credit for the trades that he has made that have worked out so sure. far. Yeah. Um, then I think it's fair to, to bring up the other side. Absolutely. Um, in terms of the trades though, I think it, you know, the talent, I think you can just look at it in terms of for right now, the quality of prospect, because we really have not seen any of these guys at the major league level. I mean, yeah. he has gotten pretty much to a man, all prospects back and some international recent international signings. He has very rarely got back major league talent uh, when it comes to a trade. The only ones I can think of off the top of my head, uh, Adam Plucko, and he only traded uh, money, cash considerations yep. for Plucko. So it's ve- been very rare that the return for a Michael Elias trade has been a major league player. They've all been minor leaguers. So, you know, we can't really truly evaluate these trades until these guys have made their debuts, but we can look at it from a value standpoint at this point. And I think that value-wise, he has won these trades. You know, Miguel Castro, in theory, is worth a lot less than a, the Orioles' number 10 prospect right? Uh, in Kevin Smith or, or 15 prospect. Um, you know, Dylan Bundy, with the kind of year that he has put up, you mentioned. And and by the way, just, just a, a side note, Michael Elias did not trade Kevin Gossman. So let's get that out of the way. <laughs> yes. That was a Dan Duquette trade that was not executed by Michael Elias. You can't stick that on on Elias. You can talk about the Dylan Bundy trade in which the Orioles got four prospects back and Dylan Bundy has an ERA close to seven and is one in seven with the LA Angels. Yep. Um, not very good. So you can say four, that guy is not worth four prospects. So Michael Elias got a great return on investment for yes. for Dylan Bundy. So I think while the, the players have not made their major league debuts and we can't determine, you know, how good of a player Kevin Smith is, what's his war, you can't look at that yet, but you can say the value was good. He got a good level prospect, and so far they they look like they've performed in the minor leagues. Yes, when I'm saying that the trades look great, I'm saying the prospects that they got in return, if you project them to the major league level and hope that they continue to grow throughout the minor leagues, like Taron Vavra looks like he has the chance to be a very good major league player. We obviously don't know if he is going to turn into a good major league player, but as it stands right now, that trade seems like it worked out for the Orioles with the quality of prospect that they got in return. Exactly. Um, next up, let's talk about the draft and ha- how he's done there. And again, you know, you can't really truly evaluate a draft class cliche until like five years out or whatever, especially in baseball, probably like 10 years out because yeah. you got to wait for these guys to make their major league debuts. However, we can look at the level of prospect that these guys are. Um, they currently have 
two guys in the top 100 of MLB uh, Pipeline's prospect rankings that Michael Elias drafted, Heston Kerstad um, and Adley Rutschman, the other two that they have, or three that they have, rather. Gunnar Henderson. They have three that Michael Elias drafted because Gunnar Henderson was added to the top 100 recently. So you have three guys there. Uh, You can say that all three of them have lived up to their billing where they have been so far, very early in their careers. But you look at Adley does not look like a miss. Gunnar Henderson does not look like a miss. Jordan Westberg, who is flying up through the system, does not look like a miss. And then even later round picks like a Joey Ortiz, Kyle Stowers, they've been good enough to say these are probably good value for where they were drafted. And and Hudson Haskin, another guy from 2020. Um, I think that overall, Michael Elias, so far, has done a pretty good job with the two drafts he's gotten. Yeah, and really the only question mark of the last two Michael Elias drafts has been Heston Kerstad. And that question mark isn't coming because we don't think that Heston Kerstad is going to be a good player. That question mark is only there because of the health concerns. So if Heston Kerstad is healthy and able to play in this minor league season, we probably aren't looking at that as a question mark. And the problem is those health concerns didn't come until after the draft. It's not like he drafted him... That's something that could get lost over time, like the fact that Elias did not trade Kevin Gosman. You forget a lot of these things <laughs> yes. as they go over time. But he it's not like these he had um, these health issues when he was drafted and Mike Elias knew the risk. It, it happened afterwards. There was nothing. Nobody expected it. Um, and it has been very unfortunate for a guy who is immensely talented. And I think he still holds the keys to that draft class in a, in a way. Yeah. You know, the success... Of, of Heston Kerstad is is hugely important to the success of that draft class overall, especially considering they only got six guys from that shortened 2020 draft class. And even if Jordan Westberg and Hudson Haskin hit and they're good pros, you had the number two overall pick in Heston Kerstad. So that is the most important pick in that draft. Yes, and it's also important to keep in mind with that Heston Kerstad pick that even though he was maybe the sixth or seventh best prospect going into the draft, because you underslotted at that number two overall pick, you were able to get a lot better depth going throughout the draft. Like a guy like Kobe Mayo that they got in, what, the fifth round? He looks like a really exciting prospect at third base. He hits for a ton of power, and you don't get somebody like Kobe Mayo unless you go a little bit underslot with Heston Kerstad at number two. Right. So it's really going to take a few years, I think, to truly evaluate how good that Heston Kerstad pick was, because even if he doesn't play up to the level of, say, Austin Martin, who many projected to be that number two overall pick, if somebody like Kobe Mayo that you couldn't have gotten otherwise is performing throughout the minors and maybe turns into a good major league player, then you kind of have to add that value yeah. a little bit to Heston Kerstad and say that that was an even better pick because of the depth you were able to get later on. Right. It's like saying, would you rather have Austin Martin and whomever the Blue Jays drafted with their fifth round pick? Or, right. you know, you have to take these draft class draft classes as a whole. Exactly. Um, all right. Finally, international free agency. I mean, personally, I didn't think that the Orioles were going to be this successful in an international free agency this early in Michael Elias's tenure. I think it's a credit to, to uh, Kobe Perez, the job that he has done since he was added. This is what we heard when he was hired, but the fact that Kobe Perez already has a foothold in that market, already is well-versed in the international market um, with other teams, with Cleveland and with Philadelphia, really 
he's just bringing that experience, all that contact, all the the um, you know young players that he has already gotten to know. He's just bringing that to the Orioles. So I mean, they they didn't start up and all of a sudden they had the best international class, but they had a fine one that that it, for the past two years they've put themselves at least in the middle of the pack with Michael Hernandez, a, a top signing, Samuel Basayo were the top two signings from the recent class. So I think that they are already a little bit further than I thought they would be at this point. Well, and Paul, we're talking about the international market. I mean, the fact that we didn't talk about it at all before Michael Elias was here says enough. They've got two top 30 prospects from that international signing period, and that's more than they had in recent memory at all. Yeah. I mean, the Orioles are actually active in international signing, and even the fact that that is the case is an improvement. Yeah. And they already have the plans ready for a new facility down there as well, which will be exciting. Um, All right. We've covered the strengths. Shall we get into the weaknesses? Let's do it. I think that the, really the only area of criticism, not the only one, but the the one that has the most valid point for the the Michael Elias tenure so far has just been the product on the major league field and the work that Michael Elias has done to improve that. Now, you can talk about how important it is that you have a average, above-average major league team while you're undergoing this vast rebuild in the minor leagues, how important it is to spend money in a free agency where you know that your ultimate plans are not to win a World Series in the short term, but in the, the long term. You can debate that. However, I think it's fair to look at the product on the major league field and just wonder if enough has been, uh, Michael Ice has sufficiently addressed the areas of need on the diamond. There's a very, very thin line between signing veteran free agents that are going to help your team in the short term and not signing too many veteran free agents that are going to fill the spots for guys that might come up and succeed at the major league level. You don't want to stop any of your minor leaguers from actually being able to come up to the majors and show what they have. Like, take second base, for example. I'm sure going into this season, Michael Elias is thinking, okay, we've got two prospects in Jemai Jones and Ryland Bannon that could realistically come up and play second base maybe by July or August. So you don't want to sign a big-name second baseman in free agency to stop them from doing that. However, when you don't really address the position at all, you go out and claim Yulmer Sanchez, who gets cut before the season, you're left with a revolving door of second basemen that are not very good between Pat Vileka, Rio Ruiz, Ramon Arias, and Stevie Wilkerson. There were some second base options that I think Michael Elias probably could have gone after in free agency. Jonathan VR signed a $3.5 million deal with the Mets. Jonathan Scope, probably a little bit more money than the Orioles wanted to spend. He goes back to the Tigers for $4.5 million. Brad Miller... Three and a half million to the Phillies. Joe Panic, one and a half million to the Jays. He's hit 276 in just 35 games. There were other options there that I think would have been an improvement over the revolving door that you have currently. Would you want to sign somebody for three million when you have Jemai Jones and Ryland Bannon? I don't know. It's just a very thin line between keeping that competitiveness at the major league level while still keeping the door open for your minor leaguers. Just want to say, getting a comment from Gian. Nunez on uh, YouTube asking, saying, is this guy Grayson's brother? Because they look alike. I think he's talking about me or is that talking about you? I assume you. I would think me. We actually saw Grayson Rodriguez's brother yesterday. We did. (laughs) Bowie. And they look exactly alike. They look exactly alike. So if you think I look like him, 
Yeah, Grayson Rodriguez's brother. His actual brother. Actual brother. A lot anyway. like him, yeah. All right, back to your point about <laughs> second base, Brendan. I think uh, the, the Orioles at this point, according to fan graphs, are dead last in weighted runs created plus from second baseman. And that matches what we've seen with the eyes, like you mentioned. Um, did the Orioles place too much expectation, do you think, on Yomer Sanchez coming into this season? I mean, we from the media side, f- from the moment he was claimed, said... Maybe not from the moment he was claimed, but from the time he was claimed, they let Hanser Alberto go. You start to say, all right, he's got to be your starting second baseman. I don't know if they ever did that internally. You know, right. it's hard to say. And Michael Eyes, when he claimed Yolmer Sanchez, said, let's not uh, overestimate this. You know, let's let's not blow this out of proportion. Like, this is a, a this is a waiver claim. Yeah. So, so keep that in mind. It's not like they the deal that they signed for Freddie Galvis where this is a major league deal and they said the, from the moment they signed Freddie Galvis, he's our starting shortstop. They did not do that with uh, Yomer Sanchez, but it seems like they expected him to be their starting second baseman. Yeah, and he was penciled in throughout the offseason, at least in our eyes, as right. the starting second baseman, considering this was a guy who won a gold glove at second base in 2019, even if he was only hitting you know 200 or something like that at least he was going to be solid defensively at second base until you had a better offensive option, whether it be Jemai Jones or Ryland Bannon coming in at some point throughout the season. He seemed like a logical stopgap, I yeah. think, at that position. But he just kind of whiffed. I mean, he probably just didn't show anything going into the season. And he's with the Braves organization now and hitting 163 in AAA. So obviously the bat would not have played at the major league level. And I do understand the argument of using that second base position to see what you have in Rio Ruiz, see what you have in Ramona Rios. But at a certain point, if you're dead last in all of baseball in production at that position, you've got to have some kind of short-term solution. Yes, but it, the tough part now is just like you have to look between that you you I totally understand that the Rio Ruiz part because you if you want to give him an extended look at second base which they did that takes up a, a couple months right. they gave him a couple months there how many weeks do we have to wait until Jemai Jones and Rylan Bannon get called up and would Rylan Bannon already be up if he hadn't suffered an injury would Jemai Jones already be up if he hadn't suffered an injury with AAA Norfolk so you're sure. really looking at this couple week gap us again us being in the weird middle ground right now Maybe in a few months, in August, we're not talking about second base being an issue anymore because we've already seen Ryland Bannon or Jemai Jones debut and be fine at, at second base and, and show some promise there. So it's yeah. really just this middle ground and, and did the Orioles do enough with this middle ground? And you can say, well, maybe Rio Ruiz had run out of chances before this season. Fine, I understand that, but I do tend to side with the Orioles here and say it's still worth another shot to see how he can do at second base and see if he can be a major leaguer. Right. So even with the lack of production at second base, you could look at it and say it was productive in that you got your final looks at Rio Ruiz, right. your final look at Ramon Arias. He's still at the AAA level. Who knows if we'll see Ramon Arias at some point again this season. So maybe it accomplished what the Orioles were hoping that it would do, even if the production isn't there. Right. And when you talk about that, you mentioned all the free agents and Jonathan VR and Jonathan Scope that got mentioned. Um, you know, it is easy to go back and, and look at these guys, but all these, a lot of these guys that sign these one year deals are, were kind of on the same level, you know, and it doesn't, you don't quite know what you're going to get from a guy year to year. And you're really only looking at a couple months stretch because you're looking at these guys to be trade pieces. For example, last year, Jose Iglesias, they, they nobody expected him to hit 
377 right. <laughs> in yeah. 40 games last year. And uh, he was on this because if they did, a contender would have signed him, you know? So like these guys that are on these one-year deals, it's hard to predict from year to year exactly how good they are going to be. For example, you know, um, Michael Franco. We, you don't know what he's going to be. You hope that he's good for a, a short stretch so that you can trade him, but you never know. And, and even Jonathan VR, we talked about him back in, during free agency. He had hit under 200 for the Toronto Blue Jays in their samples, in a small sample size yep. there. So it's, it's very difficult to project these guys on a year to year basis. And that's why, you, you know, you have to take everything as a whole. So it's easy to look back and say maybe the Orioles should have signed this guy or that guy. They probably should have done more to address the position, whether it was VR or scope. I think it's fair to say that, uh, especially as you look at some second baseman around the league, look at Nick Magical with the White Sox going down with injury, you know, and now Trevor Story at shortstop. So maybe they were expecting, I'm jumping off here, but maybe the Orioles were expecting to be able to trade Freddie Galvis to a team that was in need of a shortstop, a contender. Uh, but there might be more contenders looking for second baseman. And if the Orioles had signed a bigger name to a major league deal at second base, they might be able to get something in return for that guy. Right. And that's the two-sided argument. Again, you look at shortstop with Freddie Galvis, that one-year deal, at least so far, has seemed like it's worked out. Freddie Galvis has been good so far, and he is a piece that could potentially get traded at the deadline. But again, there's no really no minor leaguer banging down the door to right. play shortstop for the Orioles right now. Second base, you've got Rylan Bannon and Jemai Jones, and a similar argument can be made for starting pitching. Right. Do you really want to go out and sign somebody to improve your rotation? Well, ideally, yes, but you've also got a bunch of prospects in Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer, Zach Lowther, Mike Bauman that are going to get opportunities this season. And if you went out and signed Stephen Matz, Alex Wood, somebody like that, they're having good seasons so far. Do you really want to keep them in the rotation? Or would you rather leave that door open for some minor leaguers? But right. then again, maybe if they're good, you can trade them at the deadline. So there's a bunch of different arguments to be made. I think the, yeah, I think the, the fine line is they have to be good enough for you to trade, want to, to get something back for them. Right. They have to be good enough to become a trade piece, um, but they can't be, you know, they, they, also can't be bad. <laughs> like if right. they're if they're bad, then you're looking at at you know DFAing a guy. It's it's right. a tough middle ground. Uh, you don't want them to be like pretty good to the point where they you have to keep them in the lineup and you're blocking somebody, but they're not good enough to be a trade piece. Right, and that's the argument to be made when you look at pieces in the rotation right now, like Matt Harvey and Jorge Lopez. Matt Harvey has gotten ERA close to eight. Jorge Lopez has an ERA of five and a half. Ideally, would you have liked to maybe sign an Alex Wood who was signed for $3 million to the San Francisco Giants and has an ERA of 371? Ideally, absolutely. But there's also a chance that you sign somebody for $3 million, they don't pan out, you can't trade them at the deadline, and now you're kind of stuck with them in your rotation. Right, and then you have to DFA somebody who's pretty good yeah. to, in order to bring somebody up right. or because you can't trade him, he's not good enough. So it, it is a tough kind of spot to be in. And I understand and probably agree with the idea of siding with not blocking somebody. If you, right. you know, they, they tend to side with the uh, uh, lean towards not blocking somebody. If, if it's a toss up, if they say, well, we could upgrade this position in the short term with somebody but we really don't want to block Jemai Jones or Brylon Bannon or Mike Bauman or Zach Lowther. 
I understand that. To yes. me, that makes perfect sense. And it it's tough to see on the field sometimes if the the stopgap is not performing well, like Matt Harvey has really been struggling. Our worst take on the uh, don't don't go back and watch Matt Harvey is becoming <laughs> tradable. Don't. It's just not it's not good. Uh, though you know that can be tough to watch at times. Yeah, but I totally understand the thinking of need to give Zach Lowther, Mike Bauman. Alexander Wells, one of those guys, a shot in the, pretty soon. Well, look, as long as we're looking at the Elias weaknesses, I think I would have opted to sign one veteran starting pitcher that was a step above the Matt Harvey, Felix Hernandez. Right. They were good six years ago. Let's see if they're good now. It's here. I don't think that we didn't expect Felix Hernandez to be to struggle as much as he did. Yeah. I don't think the Orioles probably expected. He was pretty good in spring training for the Braves two years ago. Yeah. No, that's two years ago, but right. or, or last year, I guess, 2020, before the shutdown happened. Yes. Um, and, of course, he struggled with injury. His fastball velocity was not very good. I think they honestly expected a little bit more out of Felix Hernandez and didn't have to be relying too much on Matt Harvey here. I would agree. I just, I, I think if it were me personally, I would have gone for one starting pitcher that was maybe in the tier of Steven Matz, Alex Wood, Michael Waka, right. Ross Stripling, one of those guys that you can bring in on a one-year maybe $3 million, $4 million deal, right. and you can keep them in the rotation, hopefully trade them at the deadline, and if not, it's really only one spot that you are holding up in the rotation. It's not like you're going to have Lowther, Bauman, Aiken in the rotation at the same time until probably way September. later in the year. Yeah, until September. Yeah. So I, I think one veteran that was a little bit more expensive would have been worth that dice roll. Just what they did at shortstop. Just exactly. They did with Freddie Galvis. Exactly. I definitely uh, uh, agree with that. All right. We've gone over strength, weakness in the SWAT. You would think it would be an A, but it's an O. Opportunities. Wow. Do you have any opportunities you think that the Orioles need to, to cash in? I think the biggest upcoming opportunity is in a month and a half yeah. with the trade deadline and another opportunity is in a month with the, the draft. Well, look, I think it's just a case of can the rich get richer in terms of the prospects? Yeah. The Orioles have a ton of really good prospects in the minor leagues, and you also have good veteran players at the major league level right now that could get traded at the deadline. I think there's a possibility that Trey Mancini and Anthony Santander get traded. I would be surprised if John Means gets traded, but there's still the possibility there, and I would be shocked if Cedric Mullins gets traded. I don't think that's really even a possibility for the young center fielder. Yeah, 26 years old, I think he lines up with the rebuild enough that I don't think you want to trade him. Yeah, and I think the opportunities are really the same as they have been for the last two years, which is how good are the prospects that you can get from trading your veteran players and how good are the prospects that you can get in the draft and just hope that you can hit on those. And there's going to continue to be opportunity as long as the Orioles are having high draft picks and as long as they are in sell mode at the deadline, which they will obviously be this year. So I think that the opportunities also play into the threats. So I think that's what, you know, you kind yeah. of group them together here because I think that the only thing that at this point, the, the biggest threat would be internal because I don't think you worry too much about what other teams are doing at this point. You know, no. down the line, you talk about, all right, the Yankees and the Red Sox are a threat on the field. But I think the biggest threat is just not getting complacent, not, not looking too far ahead in this rebuild. And I don't, I don't expect Michael Elias to do that at all. He's always been process oriented, but you know, there are, there are always, it's difficult to make a lot of di those deals. You mentioned John means Trey Mancini, 
even Cedric Mullins, although I don't think he, he would be dealt. He was in that category. Those would be very difficult deals to make yeah. because the, the fan base has very understandably become attached to these players. They're fun. They're Trey Mancini has the best story in all of baseball. They're the bright spots. On they're, the team. they're the bright spots on the team. And uh, we saw the kind of fan reaction after Jose Iglesias was traded because he was very productive in 2020. The, the fan reaction generally sometimes can be just frustration. And we get that from a, a fan standpoint because you, you want to see these guys succeed in Baltimore and you don't want to let a talented player go. However, Michael Elias has always been process-oriented, long-term, longest view in the room. He's not going to get complacent, think this rebuild is further ahead than it actually is. And I don't expect him to become so attached to some players that he can't, he can't move them. Right. I expect him to v- evaluate everything. And he's always said, there's nobody who's off-limits uh, on this team. That's how you have to view it in a rebuild. So just understanding that this is not, you know... The Orioles have a top five farm system. That's great. But the entire purpose of this is to build the best farm system in baseball. It's not not just to have the fifth best. Right. You're putting all of your resources, everything for the past few years have been for this farm system. You got to make that the best it's going to be. With that in mind, though, I think we are getting close to the line with some of these players where a player turns from a veteran that you should trade to a veteran that is young enough that you can keep and move forward with. I think that line, at least in my opinion, is very close to, if not there, with John Means and Cedric Mullins. I think those are two players that have succeeded at the major league level. I think Mancini is a little bit beyond that point. I think Mancini falls into the category with Anthony Santander, where they are veteran players whose timeline does not really line up with the rest of the rebuild. John Means, I know he is the same age or maybe a year older than Anthony Santander, but... I think he's two years older than... Is he Santander. two years older? I think so. Pitchers' primes are later in their careers than a right fielder's prime. I mean, John Means isn't going to hit arbitration until his age 30 season. Right. And Because he got called up later, yeah. Right. And hopefully we can uh, project Means to continue to be good down the line for four or five years. That lines up with the rebuild. Yeah. Cedric Mullins is 26 years old. I think he has a chance to stick with the team in center field for a few years down the line. Those guys line up with the rebuild more than I think Trey Mancini and Anthony Santander do. So while you need to trade those veteran players, I think we are getting closer and closer to the line where, yes, they're productive, but they're here to stay for a bit. I think this is a little preview of the conversations that we're going to be having on the podcast over the coming weeks as we get closer and closer to the trade deadline because... There are going to be some tough decisions for Michael Elias to make, and we're going to see how he makes these decisions because I think a lot of the, the trades that we talked about and we gave him credit for, a lot of them were no-brainers, so to speak. You know, Andrew Kashner, he's going to walk after the season. He's well over 30. Absolutely trade him. Alex Cobb, same deal. Going to walk after the season. A somewhat onerous contract. You get some a good prospect for him, definitely. Um, even Jose Iglesias, only one year left. Got to make that deal. All deals with the Angels, I feel like I've mentioned. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but these, some of these other deals are probably not going to be no-brainers. They're yeah. going to be tougher to make, and, and especially because you have much more of a connection. Fan base is much more of a connection to Trey Mancini and John Means than they ever did to Andrew Kashner and Alex Cobb. 
Yeah, they are not cut and dry deals no. by any stretch of the imagination. No. There is a legitimate case to be made on both sides that you could keep Trey Mancini for three years and have him line up with the rebuild. Right. Same thing with John Means. Same thing with Anthony Santander. You can make a legitimate case for all of these guys that they will be productive for the Orioles in a few years down the line. But then again, you could also get good prospects for them that could be yeah. productive more years down the line. Exactly. Well, we got into it. We got into we the did. weeds, talked about the, the rebuild. And I think from this point onward on our podcast, we're going to focus more on the draft. So expect a lot of draft talk over the coming weeks because the Orioles hold the fifth overall pick in the MLB draft that is begins on the, the last day of the first half of the regular season. So July 11th, that night, okay. I believe, is the first night of the MLB draft, and then it will continue through the All-Star break. So we'll go home run derby, All-Star game. Um, so we will have full coverage, and we will start to talk about some of the prospects that the Orioles could take with that number five overall pick, there's a lot of options. We got we to gotta work cut out for us, Brendan. Yes, we do. We got to start our, our, our draft prep. How Ooh. long do you think our draft note Google Doc is going to be? 40 pages? At least. It's going to be long. Even for just the number five overall pick. Yeah. There's 10 or 12 possibilities at that spot, depending on who slides, who yeah. could move up, who could be underslotted. I'm seeing a lot of stuff about, I mean, all the mock drafts I've seen, Kumar Rockers fall into like, Five, six, seven. Oh, he had a tough conference tournament. And yeah. That is dropping him a little bit. I think Leiter has pretty solidly separated himself. Jack Leiter, also with Vanderbilt. Yeah. We'll talk about this. Stuff. This is all good stuff. There's a lot to go through. There is. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Bobby Blanco for running the show. Of course, rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends. All that good stuff. You can catch it on any platform that you can find. At Brendan Morty is Brendan's Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano. We're back in the warehouse. Better than ever. Gas cans, whatnot. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.